Heavenly Father, you know us all too well. We misplace things far too often. I pray that you would help us see today the profaneness of things in this world. Sanctify the things that we don't realize we have used to. Teach us to pray in Jesus' precious Open your Bibles to the letter of Hebrews, and we're almost done walking through this letter. And uh, we've been looking most recently at chapters 6 through 13, why we're gathering, the purpose of it all, taking our Christian walks to a whole nother level, and I've offered you these ways of my summarizing them. First of all, in receiving the promise and understanding all that that means, and developing relationship with Christ primarily, but then also with each other. They cannot be separated. Then exploring the concept of rest, and most recently, resilience and resistance, so that we can finish well. And we spent a few weeks talking about resilience, and that's about doing certain things, proactively pursuing something. But now we're in the middle of considering resistance. That is not doing certain things. Standing strong. And the important note about this is that to tell you to not do something, please understand, this isn't about belligerent. I don't want to teach you to be belligerent and stubborn people who won't do things. I'd like us to understand this is about avoidance of the pitfalls that are certain to be in our way. As we've been following the metaphor of the run or the race, like the author tells us here in chapter 12 of Hebrews, these are like the final words of a coach just before you run. Now you know what to do. Make sure you don't do these things. Avoid these pitfalls. And thus, the picture that I'm using on the PowerPoint of this runner who needs to be careful to avoid the pitfalls. Don't, don't soften. Accept difficulty as discipline. Don't sell out. Abhor the profane as misplaced. And that's what we want to consider this morning. Remember, for the umpteenth time walking through this letter, this is about God's goodness towards us. This is last week that I tried to learn how to play guitar, right? And I was supposed to learn how to play this song, God is so good. I never learned it. It was painful. It was horrible. And I didn't like the song for all that was attached to the lesson. I thought it was simple. I thought it was kind of meaningless. The longer I've walked this journey, the more profound that concept of God's goodness shakes me to my soul. God is good in the most profound ways. And He wants all of that good for us. He doesn't want us to miss any of it. And there is much in these concepts of resisting. So here's our formula, and you have it in your notes. What resistance produces is greater than a human difficulty, like we looked at last week, but also greater than any earthly pleasure. And this is tied to these three relevant uh, issues that I introduced last week. Human difficulty, the why me's, okay, and that's what we talked about last week. Don't soften, accept difficulty, 
as a discipline because discipline is an expression of love. You're a child of God. Stop thinking you're done. You have much to learn. Submission is our response of love. Stop questioning His goodness. And difficulty is part of growing our love. So stop protecting yourself and others from what God is trying to do. The author wants these um, relevant issues to be seen the way God sees them. Human difficulty is a training process that produces all he wants in his children. And that's good because he completes his work in us that way. But now we're ready for relevant issue number two. Not um, why me, but rather why can't I? The pleasures of this world. Why can't you have whatever you want? After all, you're told every day you can Misplaced pleasures of this world, misplaced pleasures, are inappropriate when they're given a priority they were never intended to have. And in this we find God's goodness because He protects us from needless harm. So, let me try and unwrap that concept this morning. The second way we resist is to not sell out. To abhor the profane as misplaced. And we read the verses this morning from Hebrews chapter 12. I'd like to read verses 16 and 17 again. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as, as, afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. The profane is pleasure that is misplaced. Don't do this. Is the picture up there yet? Yeah. Is there anything wrong with a convertible? No. Is there anything wrong with a swimming pool? No. It's not a good idea to mix the two. It doesn't work real well. What's wrong with this? In this sense, it's profane. There may have been profanities mixed in with this, but I mean that this is profane. We have a good thing in the wrong place. Hmm. We are profane in a couple of ways. First of all, we take good things and we put them in the wrong place. And this is about Esau, the bitter brother. Here's the example. His pleasures for the world in misplaced priority. He chose to put something, even a good thing, in the wrong place or priority. I actually like what the Italian... Uh, does with this particular concept in, in, in their translation. The NASB does the same thing. The English makes a distinction between being immoral or a fornicator and then being godless like Esau. Actually, New American Standard and Italian say this. See to it that no one is a fornicator or profane like Esau, who for a single pleasure sold his inheritance. You see, fornication is just one form of profanity. Putting the wrong thing 
in the right place. Treating something sacred with irreverence. The highest priority given to something never meant to have that place. Fornication is wrong because it takes a good thing and it puts it in the wrong place. Esau's error was profane because he was substituting a sacred right for a perfectly good thing. See that? A sacred right of being firstborn, of receiving the blessing. He substituted for a perfectly natural good thing that never was meant to have that kind of importance. Would you rather have a bowl of stew? Or would you like to have the rights of a firstborn? How profane to even compare them, let alone choose a bowl of stew over what was his sacred life. And we often justify something because it's not bad in and of itself, but, it, but is it in the correct place? See a young man on a Saturday afternoon walking down the street with a baseball bat on his shoulder? And you smile to yourself and say, Oh, cool, you're going to Little League. See the same young man in a black hood, hoodie with the hood up, at midnight with the same bat on his shoulder, and you don't have the same reaction. Because there's nothing wrong with the bat, but it's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Esau should have been blessed, but he messed it all up by putting good things in the wrong places. Instead, resisting, according to God's design, brings even greater blessing than any temporary pleasure we can imagine. It's not about the bat, it's about the one who made the bat. And it may not seem pleasurable at the time, and we kind of want what's okay, but we fail to evaluate where it stands in priority to God. And I want you in this to avoid the regret. You see, in this passage, the problem is in the description. The solutions are found in the world. And we'll get to that in a minute. But the problem, problems in the passage are in the description. And we have this description of Esau placing a good thing in the wrong place. Now, there's a second way that we are profane. We place the wrong God in the right place. And this is about us and the bitter root uh, that verse 15 speaks about. Look at verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause any trouble or defile many. And I'd like to go to another passage to explain that. And that's in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 29. Deuteronomy Chapter 29. The hardest word I ever had to learn in Italian. So I just keep practicing it because it took so long for me to say it correctly. You should have seen me trying to preach when I couldn't say the passage. Deuteronomy chapter 29. Just stalling so you can find the passage. Beginning in verse 16. You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt. How we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw... Among them, these countries, there are detestable images and idols of wood and stone and silver and gold. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today, whose heart 
turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. Then verse 19, when such a person hears the words of this oath, he invokes a blessing on himself and therefore thinks, I'll be safe even though I persist in going my own way. This will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. And he goes on to explain all that will happen. And as a matter of fact, all of those things did happen as they followed after the gods of these lands that they never should have. And it wasn't until their exile to Babylon that they were finally stripped of that horrible behavior of worshiping other idols. Misplaced God, the profane, is the true God that is misplaced. The next picture up there? Go to the next one. Here's a couple of examples. On the left side, a little hard to see, but we hear this a lot. Peace sign, we've got the nice heart in the middle. Notice man gets to be in the middle. And all of the religions are around, and the cross of Jesus Christ has its place, but no better than any other. And if we will just respect everybody, and all the gods get to be put in their place, and we get to be where we want to be, then we can all have peace with each other. It's foolish. God misplaced is profane. I don't know how many of you actually do that. We're probably more guilty of the right side. Because we don't think we're idolaters. And we wouldn't chase after other gods, would we? Except for the material, right? Our Egypt was our slavery to sin when we were lost. Our wilderness is the journey to where God is leading us. On the way, we see all kinds of stuff. And we quickly criticize these people for worshiping objects of wood and stone. But then we do the same thing. We don't bow, but we give them honor because we spend a lot to get them, don't we? It's made of an inanimate material, yet it animates our souls because if I could have that, then I would... In this way, we're idolaters. We give honor or money to get things. And they aren't bad in and of themselves, but they're bad when they're in the wrong place. And the results are insidious and devastating to our walk with Christ. So I ask you to abhor the misplaced. When we turn our hearts away from God, when another gets a place of priority, a bitter root takes hold in us that produces a poison. We end up selling out. Now, wanted to move through all of that. And I've been struggling with this concept all the time. Because I think that you are sitting there knowing me. I really do. And I'm not kidding. Uh, you may not be literally with me, but I think that you're listening to this and you're saying, yeah, okay. I get it. But you're not convinced that it relates to you or matters to you as much as it should. So, in sh- short of following you around all week long and going, ah, see, that's profane. Wouldn't you just love that? Who wants to sign up first? I'll follow you around all week long going, Ah, that's profane. You've got the wrong thing in the right place. You've got the right thing in the wrong place. Besides, who am I to judge? On the other hand, I can't just let this go as if, as if you're really going to get it. So 
I've come up with something kind of silly. I recognize it. But I wonder if this will help us. A few principles that might help us. These aren't in my notes. Four ways that I think this kind of profanity shows up in our lives. Got mice? M-I-C-E. Who wants mice? Nobody wants mice. Some of you even just mentioning that and imagining one running across your kitchen floor is causing you to jump up on chairs and go, Honey! There's a mouse! Others of you are much more manly than that. But you don't want the mice anyway. Nobody wants mice in their house. Okay? Giving you an acronym for mice when it comes to this kind of profanity. And they go from the most obvious to the most insane. So here we go. First of all, you can be profane in the most obvious way. Materialism. M. Materialism. Just mentioned it. Right? Stuff. Giving stuff too much importance. Stuff in and of itself. The question is, what kind of value does it have? What importance does it have? How much honor do you give it? How much do you spend to get it? How responsible and, and uh, a steward are you regarding what you have materially? You weigh that. You wrestle with that. It's an obvious application. It's just one, but it's one. That's an obvious one. We get profane when we take things and make them idols. Secondly, the eye. The obvious. The more insidious. The eye is ideology. How much do you care about politics compared to the government? I know you care about politics. I hear your conversations and I have your conversations with you. And I do too. Answer this question honestly to yourself. Are you more free to discuss politics with someone you know that doesn't know Jesus Christ than you are to discuss the gospel with someone you know that doesn't know Jesus Christ? If you're honest with yourself, I bet it comes easy to talk about whatever the hottest, latest ideological conflict you have. That isn't necessarily bad. Please, I'm, I'm speaking like this way on a memorial day. When we need to be grateful and recognize the free country that we live in, please, don't misunderstand it. But think about the people around you that don't know Jesus Christ and how much you've ever spoken to them about Him, about the Gospel. Or how many conversations have you had about the weather? You see, that's where things get misplaced. The priorities are the same. You can't ever talk about those things, but do you ever get to the gospel? Do you ever have the chance that you get to open up and do you ever try and start a conversation, ask the right questions? Materialism, ideology. Next one. Conviction. Conviction. 
You're going to hear this from me many times. Some of you perhaps have already heard it. It's rather simple. It's a way that I call uh, how we think and how we should think. The most important thing in life are the absolutes, they're the essentials. They're the Word of God. They're the, uh, the, the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, the redemption plan of the Father, the, the Holy Spirit who indwells us, uh, this Word that instructs us and is our final authority for life and godliness, faith in Christ alone for your salvation, all of the absolutes, the basics, the most important things that this world desperately needs to hear this truth. And out of those things come convictions that cause us to draw conclusions. And those convictions can vary. And it's why we can have churches that are so different from each other. The very same absolutes cause people to come to different convictions on different issues. And we have those. And it's okay for them to exist. Then there's another level of preferences. And our preferences are really things that we tend to think are more important than they are, but they're not. And a lot of things fall into that category. And we end up mixing these things. We take our convictions and we make them absolutes. We take our preferences and make them convictions. Generally, preferences are like in the area of music. Ooh, that's a big issue in church, right? And that one can fall to a level of conviction that can deeply divide. And maybe it should. There are other issues of conviction that are much more important. Even worse when we take it to some kind of level of absolute. Let me give you an illustration myself regarding myself. I have a personal conviction that every single follower of Jesus Christ should sincerely consider their role in world evangelism. Young people should all, every single one of them, at one point in their life, early on, say, Jesus, do you want me to go? I believe to the depth of my soul, that conviction. It's not an absolute. It's a conviction. It's an absolute that the world needs to be reached. It's a conviction that I think that everyone should consider that. I think it's a pretty good conviction. But it's my conviction. So when I'm talking to my neighbor yesterday, working outside in the yard, and he starts talking to me like we've had another conversation, and he says, so... So you're like the man over there. You're you're like you're like the guy, right? Yeah, I guess the guy. You know. So I mean, like if like when people go in and and Sundays they're listening to you. So okay. So what do you guys believe anyway? Oh, I believe that every single young person in the world needs to see that this world is lost and that they should consider missions. Would that be a good idea? Clueless! But that's my conviction! We feel so deeply our convictions that are secondary, as important as they may be. And we live them on our sleeves and in our ways so strongly that we're no witness to people at all. Because we're hammering on something they've never even heard about. They can't possibly understand. Mice. Materialism, ideology, conviction. They're good, they're important, and in the right place they must exist. But they must be in their right place. Not misplaced. 
that neighbor hasn't got a clue what missions means. This is coming. I hope one day he does get it. But that'll be one day when things can be put in their proper order. M I C last one effort. Energy and time given to the least important things. This is about daily routine, busyness, poor choices to put the misplaced priorities, and we throw effort after the profane. And I said it was from the most obvious to the most insidious because these things just happen. Because you get too busy, you get too busy, you just end up going with the flow, and many things get tremendous effort, time and energy, just because We don't make the right choices to get the most important things in the right place. Instead, we have good things in the wrong place and the wrong gods in the right place. Get rid of the mice. Materialism, ideology, convictions, effort. They have their place. Put them in the right place. Field mice are great. Hawks need them to survive. Let them stay in the field. The solution to this, let me get to, and then we'll return to remind you. So that's the problem in this passage, and it's found in the description here, the idea of profane, misplaced things. Instead, the solution is found in the actions or the verbs, and people need to be properly placed. Do this. Look at verse 15. The very first word, here's the verb. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And then if you go to verse 16, your Bibles may also say something like Monday that says, see that no one is actually moral. The one verb applies to both verses actually in the original language. There's one single verb. It says, see to it. It's a very interesting verb because it conveys the idea of oversight. It's the word we get for elder or bishop that he's to be an overseer. Not what you would expect this verb to mean. Uh, it's, it conveys the idea of oversight. Uh, the context is of believers who must have oversight over each other. Watch out for each other. See to it. Guard each other. Oversee each other to make sure that no one misses the grace of God. What's the point here? There is collective thinking, not independent. Look at verse 13. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Listen to this commentary. The writer is mindful of the fact that Christians belong together. They must have consideration for the weak among their members, that is, the lame, by taking care of the defective members of the congregation. The stronger makers can, members can help them along. Where the Christian life is in any way out of joint, steps should be taken to revitalize it. We help people. But we don't like this in our fierce independence. That's the term that keeps coming to my mind as I bump up against it more and more. We have a fierce independence. Not just independent. We have a fierce independence. We want it our way. And the whole concept of a body of Christ, that it truly is better to gather, <laughs> goes against our culture. 
This is clearly collected. See to it that all of you don't miss a thing. So that the lame are not disabled. Those among you, you are responsible for all of you. You need to help each other. We do this together. We find this together. We shape and discover our, uh, all that God wants us to be together. We use the concept of the Old Testament of iron sharpening iron. I had a man... Uh, last church I visited a kind of metallurgist, and, and he told me about this, which makes sense. Kind of never thought about it before. But if you take two pieces of iron and sharp, you know, just go home, take two table knives today, and just rub them together. Do they get any sharper? They don't. They get more dull. One of them has to be harder than the other. And when one is harder than the other, then the other one is sharpened. Well, okay, I'll be the hard one. You'll be the soft one, and I'll fix you. Maturity doesn't work that way. None of you is mature fully, completely. You're mature in one area, whereas another person compared to you is less mature in that same area. Whereas you may be more immature in another area, and they are more mature in that area. And this is the way the body of Christ works. We help each other. I don't think I'm more mature than you are. I think I may have learned some things, and, and when I see that opportunity, then God gives me the chance to help that person in that area. But it might be the very same person that comes around another time and helps me see something that I haven't seen. In this sense, iron sharpens iron. The downfall of Esau was, Esau was his isolation, wasn't it? Jacob was a conniver, so was his mother. His dad was old and feeble and blind, and that left him alone. It doesn't excuse him, but it did make him vulnerable. And so he falls. And you can see why it's better to gather. Is it just some kind of cute phrase? It's an essential part of what it's all about. So put people first, and the next verb is going to tell us that we put things back. Uh, verse 14. Make every effort to live in peace with men and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. Uh, the verb here is to make every effort to pursue, and that's a strong word, more than just seek. Pursue after peace with men, and after that, actually, after that, sanctification. Get these things in the right order. Pursue peace with others and then holiness with Him. There is no independent holiness. Again, we are to be living, active uh, practicers of a genuine walk that is in relationship with those around us. If you can't get along with others and you're not pursuing that priority, there is no holy living with God. Frank Barton was reminding us of that in the first hour in the class we were in when he was walking through the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, you heard that you're not supposed to murder anybody. I tell you, if you call somebody a fool, you've already murdered them. You're guilty of judgment of hell. Wait a minute. How can it be more important, you know, for, for well, then it goes on to say, if you have a gift to, uh, to give and you take it to the altar and you realize you have something wrong with Brother, you leave it there and you go make it right with that brother before you come and give the gift to the Lord. You mean it's more important that I have my relationship right with somebody else than it is to worship the Lord? Yeah, because this is part of worshiping God. 
collective thinking here should be abrasive to our fierce independence. And it is. And it is. It molds us. It shapes us. It makes us more like we want us to be. Don't sell out. Make sure you put people first, not your independence, and that you put things back in proper order. Seeking to honor our God through our relationships with each other. Relevant issue number two. Why can't can I have it the way I want? Because we have so many misplaced treasures that are given priority that are never intended to be. And in this problem, actually, we find the goodness of God because He wants us to avoid needless pain. Don't sell it. A poor the profane is misplaced. The resistance produces is greater than any earthly pleasure. Healing and restoration instead of being crippled and disabled as described in verse 14 and is so easily crippled by the David to come and to join me, but as he just take you back to the night. Wrestle with these consequences. With materialism, that's obvious. It's easy to do. With the thing itself, it's what importance we place upon it. So, wrestle with that. That's obvious. With ideology, hold your political convictions. You don't need to change it. Just talk more about Jesus. Then politics. Develop your conviction. Deepen them. They're good. But there are people out there that have no clue what that's about. You may need to hear far beyond your convictions to be absent. Mm-hmm. And then wrestle with your efforts. Where does all your time and energy go? What things are you chasing after just because life gets that way? It's busy, it's full, overtaxing, and I just end up misplacing things, putting them in places they don't be. Good things in the wrong place, in the wrong place, in the right place. Get rid of the money. And putting people first. And putting things back in the Teach us, Lord. We are far. Too much like Esau. And we don't want to be that way. You want to spare us from so much hopeless and courageous choices to put things in the right place that you need to honor that you desire and to love each other and those around us with a life-changing need. In his name we pray. Amen.